Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Reports that Tehran and Washington are about to accept a restored Iranian nuclear deal have re-sparked debate about key components of the accord, including sanctions against Iran's petrochemical exports, monitoring by the International Atomic Energy Agency, and unfreezing Iranian assets. Should the United States even be negotiating with Iran in the first place? And what does it all mean for Israel? This week, AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer Jason Isaacson sits down with Benham Ben Telablu, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, to discuss why the nuclear threat is only one of many dangers posed by Iran. Jason, the mic is yours. Benham, thank you for joining People of the Pod. There's been a great deal of reporting in recent days that the final text of a restored Iranian nuclear deal, as prepared by the European Union, is about to be accepted by Tehran and by Washington, and that the deal would, as it's stepped in over a period of months, unfreeze blocked Iranian assets and sanctions against Iranian petrochemical exports and reopen a range of commercial relationships with Iran in return for a sharp reduction of the Iranian's highly enriched uranium stockpile, the reduction of the level of enrichment, the return of IAEA monitoring, and other anti-proliferation measures. What is your sense of the state of play now? And and I must note, of course, that we're recording this conversation on the afternoon of August 30th, and there's a chance that the situation might have changed by the time this podcast is heard. How does it look to you, Benham? Well, Jason and AJC listeners, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. First and foremost, let me just say, I've been a fan of AJC for a very long time, not just in the Iran space, but uh, way back in the day, a couple of decades ago in New York, in the interfaith space, I remember growing up listening to the likes of, uh, you know, Rabbi Rosen as a, you know, first generation Muslim American myself in New York. Uh, and I think his words post 9-11 for the past few decades across the world have helped bring together many, many communities even before the Abram Accord. So it's a pleasure to, you know, put more than a name to a face with the work you guys have been doing in the policy space. But with that introduction on a positive note, let me flip to the negative, which I think relates to the JCPOA-related news. In short, it's a moving target that you mentioned. Basically, in August of this year, the Europeans have followed up on a few trips they had made to Tehran, particularly the foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, and have followed a Financial Times op-ed, I believe he had as well, trying to bring both sides politically together over a much more limited technical consensus that would establish a framework for which the two largest sides, the Iranians and the Americans, could return to mutual compliance with a deal that is still fast expiring, known as the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal. The Europeans basically wanted to establish a more limited technical framework to just put some more caps on the Iranian program, to put some more handcuffs on American sanctions. And it was supposed to be a final proposal, but the Iranians took their time to review and they pulled their classic yes, but, or no, and, and added comments and clarifications. And Washington, particularly under the Biden administration, which has been politically interested in resurrecting this deal, also took some time to make some amendments. If you believe what's been said in the press, there's been some concessions given. And there's also been a little bit of a forthright pressure, you know, a little bit of a firmness on some issues. But I think ultimately any deal that enriches the mullahs, enriches the terrorism apparatus and treats 
American sanctions as being in separate lanes rather than, you know, kind of mutual and reinforcing and, you know, holistic, uh, which markets and politics and laws tend to be, ultimately will be undermining. And I think the Iranians for the past year and a half, culminating in the rapid news that we have now, have understood that Washington needs this deal for political reasons more than they need this deal for economic reasons. And it's one reason why you've seen the Iranians layer on demand after demand. And most recently, the Iranians brought a demand related to the technical track to the fore. And that was said by Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, who is actually sanctioned by the Trump administration, remains on the sanctions books by the Biden administration, was sanctioned previously by Trump, I mean, uh, is a major human rights violator. And he would potentially stand to receive sanctions relief by this deal. And he had tried to bring forward issues related to IEA safeguards, basically pending investigations about undeclared nuclear sites and material in Iran. And while the world has been captivated by a, a political track to restore this deal for the past year and a half emanating out of Vienna in Austria, there has been a much more quiet technical track run by the IAEA, also headquartered in Vienna, Austria. And what the Iranians are at least right now trying to very cleverly do is to make that technical track entirely hostage to the political track to basically get the world to swipe away the investigation and bring forward the JCPOA to the fore. That's the latest state of play that we have right now. I've seen some reporting that the administration has rejected the notion of wiping the slate clean on the uh, those IAEA investigations uh, before the Iranians have actually produced the, the proof, the evidence that the IAEA has demanded. Just as the administration, as I recall, made it clear that the Iranian demand that IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, be removed from the terrorism designation list. Are, are we to see, are, are we to understand that the administration actually is standing firm on the IAEA investigation, or is there some question about that? We've had a lot of indirect reporting, nothing formally confirmed by the administration, but since the late spring, alleging that they would absolutely not give up on the FTO designation, the Foreign Terrorist Organization designation of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which if those folks just show up to work every day, they're meeting the criteria to become a foreign terrorist <laughs> designated organization. Uh, but now some could you know, want to transpose that, that U.S. resolve onto this next issue, which is the safeguards issue. But for me, past this prologue here, uh, for the past year and a half, the reason the world was so obsessed with that political track was because Washington was so obsessed with it. And in many ways, in this past year and a half, you've seen the IEA Director General, Rafael Grossi, who is very much committed to much more important agreements that, uh, that underpin the global nonproliferation regime, which are not the JCPOA. They're the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement of Iran. There's the additional protocol, and, and perhaps underneath that, and more importantly, the nonproliferation treaty itself. And so he's gone to Tehran almost every quarter to almost beg and plead and fight and hold together elements of this important monitoring regime with spit and gum and glue. And for the past year or so of this year and a half, Washington has not really had his back. So it depends on what legacy you, you want to look to stand on. American lackluster support for the IAEA or potentially rumors that the U.S. may not delist the IRGC. Um, I think ultimately any deal that preferences this political track over technical track is going to be self-defeating because, as we know, this deal contains, for lack of a better word, Iranian enrichment. And if you look at the way this crisis started back in 2006 with Iran breaking seals and kicking a safeguards violation down the line and enriching uranium domestically on its own soil, there were five UN Security Council resolutions that tried to stop that. Iran has not stopped enrichment at the lowest of levels for one day since 2006. 
So this is, in my view, any deal that has this kind of concession in it has to have the commensurate monitoring and verification and broader blueprint that everything is declared and everything is safe. And absent that, I think the original sin of a potential future Iranian nuclear bomb may be seated in exactly this assertion of fudging the safeguards issue. Let me move on to where Israel stands on all of this. Israeli leaders from the right to the center to the sort of center left have um, expressed alarm at the prospect of a restored Iran nuclear deal. Uh, again and again, we've been hearing uh, statements from Israeli political figures, but also uh, in the intelligence and defense community, um, saying that it would I- impose um, certain restraints on Iran, perhaps for a short time before the deal expires in stages throughout this decade, um, but that it would also, of course, free up vast pools of funding for Iran's regional military adventurism, for support of Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthi in Yemen and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza. In, in his statement uh, just a few days ago, the Israeli Prime Minister Lapid sharply criticized the prospective deal, but he continued to praise President Biden, a strong advocate of returning to the nuclear deal, and said that Israel would not be bound by the deal's terms, but would be free to act in self-defense against the Iranian threat. What was Lapid hinting at there, or was what was he saying pretty explicitly? You know, far from me to try to divine the tea leaves on Israeli domestic politics, you know, Iranian and American ones are, are sufficiently complex and uh, head-binding. But I think if you take an Occam's razor approach to it, I think within Israel, within the broadly very different factions right now, there's a desire to make a stylistic rather than substantive change in their opposition to the JCPOA. And you see this at the upper echelons. And again, everybody does have the potential October elections, at least in my view, in mind. So there's a domestic political football there as well. But I think there's a desire to be strongly anti-JCPOA, but also draw a sharp contrast with the PM's predecessor, which is also who Bibi is also talking about opposition to the JCPOA in a qualitatively different kind of tone. My view, the 50,000-foot non-Israeli domestic politics expert, you know, mostly focusing on Iran, but transposing that lens here, is that for some in Israel, it may be a matter of time horizon. In Washington, it's a matter of time horizon and risk tolerance. But, you know, Israel doesn't necessarily have that luxury, given the geographic proximity to Iran and given Iran's overall security strategy towards Israel, which we're all kind of seeing in real time, but in slow motion over the past decade and a half has been to create, co-opt and control a series of terror groups around Israel's borders, and then to more lethally, quantitatively, and then qualitatively arm them. And so there's a, a slow and steady dagger conventionally even right now being put to Israel's neck. And I think the Lapid and, and basically others are pretty united in this front, which is to prevent Iran from putting a nuclear umbrella over that knife, which is moving closer and closer and is getting sharper and sharper. Interesting, though, in in talking about the different levels of risk tolerance between uh, Washington and and Jerusalem, um, the the recently um, announced Jerusalem-U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Joint Declaration, which came out during President Biden's visit to Israel in July, uh, includes an American commitment, as you know, in quotes, never to allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. How how do you assess that commitment in the context of a nuclear deal that you believe will really ultimately cement Iran as either a nuclear state or a nuclear threshold state? You know, working backwards, my fear with the JCPOA is, and and again, let's be real, international politics, international diplomacy does require compromises at times. But one of my reasons for the opposition to the JCPOA in 2015 and any lesser, weaker form since then has been that while I understand there's a logic and utility to kicking the can down the road, 
the way this deal is being set up and the way the sunsets are designed to kick in, and some of them have kicked in already, then you compound Iranian nuclear knowledge and violations on top of that. You're not kicking the can down the road. You're kicking the can towards the wall and it's going to be barreling towards you and you don't have your guard up for it. This is kind of the Faustian bargain built in with the deal. It's is what you're giving worth what you're getting and, and how fast do you have enough leverage and capability to bring that threat, whether it's sanctions by the US or the statement you read, potentially some kind of joint kinetic option with Israelis uh, against the Iranians to deter a potential breakout scenario or to denude or devalue any kind of Iranian threshold capability. And to me, that very much remains an open question. It remains an open question in the aftermath of President Biden's visit to the region, which I think was important, but unfortunately insufficient to change some hearts and minds, particularly elsewhere in the region, such as Saudi Arabia. That relationship is still lagging. I think there's a lot more the administration can do to continue to plug in Israel into the regional security architecture. Israeli-Saudi peace is just the tip of the iceberg. There's more drills with CENTCOM. There's greater air and missile defense stuff, which already at the lower level seems to be yielding some fruits. But ultimately, this is a question of who you are and what you already view. So if you're someone who is a skeptic of the JCPOA, you're more inclined to take that language as well as Biden's own language and draw a sharp contrast with Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump who talked about all options on the table. Others say that you know this may be more useful because it's within a framework rather than just being presidential rhetoric. I think the proof will be in the pudding, but thus far, I think there's been an unfortunate delta between U.S. words and U.S. actions, at least on the Iran nuclear threat. And that gives many in Israel and as, you know, with respect, many around the world, some cause for concern. Indeed. We are, though, as you as you point out, seeing at least the beginning of a regional security architecture, not perhaps as some had hoped or, or had described uh, before the president's visit to the Middle East in July, but at least the beginnings of it. You're certainly seeing real military cooperation, um, intelligence sharing between Israel and a couple of Abraham Accords countries. As you mentioned, uh, Israel being part of uh, CENTCOM's area of operation now, area of responsibility in ways that really open up all kinds of interesting pathways to cooperation between Israel and neighbors across that region with a common enemy. But you're right. There are still questions that have to be resolved and action that may have to be taken ultimately to, uh, to prevent uh, Iran from from moving down this road that they are clearly on. So, Benham, your organization, uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, was an opponent of the nuclear deal in 2015 and had been an opponent of the deal's revival after the unilateral U.S. pullout in 2018. Is there, in your view, a better feasible way to reduce the Iranian nuclear threat than by restoring the 2015 deal? Did maximum pressure under President Trump diminish that threat? There are people who will tell you, no, in fact, the threat increased uh, in, in, in the context of maximum pressure. Is, is it your view that strictly enforcing Iranian energy sanctions, which have been pointed out, have not been tightly enforced in the last couple of years, would that bring Iran to the table? Or is this such a fundamental principle of the Iranian regime that it needs to have a nuclear weapon or the ability to manufacture a nuclear weapon down the road? then they will starve themselves to get it, sanctions be damned. What is your sense of a better way to approach this terrible dilemma? Well, I think you have a, a great question there and some really great sub-questions. And, and perhaps to start with that, that big one about the overall approach, I think approach or a broader Iran policy is the right way. And it is essentially what is needed. And it is what, unfortunately, for many years now has been missing in action. 
in many ways, when we've been looking at the Iranian nuclear program since 2002 and the Iranian threat since 2002, we've made those two things synonymous, but they're not. They're only, the nuclear threat is only one element of the broader threat posed by the Islamic Republic. It's not just the nuclear issue. It's because of that larger architecture of threat, that larger history, that larger willingness to spend national interest in the public good in the name of that country on these illicit and ideological quests, which most of the Iranian people do not do not share. And so, you know, most unfortunately, it creates for a very battle-hardened, resolute, uh, risk-tolerant and cost-effective asymmetric enemy that we know the Islamic Republic to be. So it requires, you know, all elements of U.S. power to be on the table at all times. That shouldn't be a political issue. I think sometimes there is a self-handicapping mechanism in Washington. We treat these things in isolation political, economic, diplomatic, military, informational, uh, or intelligence tools are separated when really they should all be really seen together. They're part of one larger element of trying to deter and prevent a nuclear-armed Islamic Republic. And so in this sense, my, my one bit of advice to U.S. policymakers is to break out of this deal-or-no-deal deal paradigm. We don't need just an Iran arms control policy. We need an Iran policy that has an arms control and non-proliferation component to it. And uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned briefly a little bit of the, the cultural background <laughs> of myself here and, and bringing a bit of that to bear. There's this great line by the famous Persian poet Rumi, where he says, Ab kamju which means seek thirst, not water. You know, we shouldn't just seek the end state. We should seek the sustaining mechanism to get us to the end state. We should seek that lifestyle and the lifestyle of a more aggressive containment of an Islamic Republic, so long as the Islamic Republic continues to act along the lines that it acts. I don't think that should be a particularly partisan policy proposition in Washington, but unfortunately, with the advent of the JCPOA, it has become that way. So I think when you actually do look at some of these timelines, there's lots of different stories based on what your starting point and your stopping point is. For many people, most unfortunately, the Iran nuclear threat was born on May 8, 2018, the day the Trump administration left the deal. But that is fundamentally not the case. The government of Iran has had a nuclear program in one shape or another across two regimes for over 60 years now. They have sustained this with, with great cost. There are status and security reasons driving both the late Shah's regime and the current Islamic Republic towards at least a nuclear capability, if not an, a nuclear weapon. And the Islamic Republic, with its hyper-paranoia and ideological zeal and desire to change the regional security structure, has put its money where its mouth is quite often. And it responds to strength. It responds to pressure. It also punches back in the face of pressure, as many forgot and learned the hard way during the years of maximum pressure under the Trump administration. It's not at all the case, particularly as their capabilities are evolving and their risk tolerance is growing and the U.S. force posture is diminishing in the region. These guys are actually punching back more and more. So we shouldn't say that Iran will take the pressure lying down. But we have to have a, a plan B and a plan C and a plan D, a real kind of comprehensive policy. So long term, it means standing with the Iranian people for their broader aspirations for democratic change. In the medium term, it means having a robust deterrence, coercive apparatus, you know, robust U.S. force presence in the region, buttressed by growing alliances between the adversaries of the Islamic Republic, perhaps Israel, perhaps the Gulf Arabs, perhaps finding a way to deal with this uh, Turkish situation with Erdogan, which is very fluid and very precarious. And I have my issues with this potential Israel normalization, because I think that man is very prone to U-turns and 180s, as many Turkey watchers are very often quick to point out. And ultimately, we need to have a way to respond in kind to Iranian escalation. 
Benham, this has been fascinating. I really so much appreciate your going into all of the details of the deal and, and what it means about the future of the relationship that Iran will have with its neighbors and future course of American policy, as well as the policy of, uh, of our allies in, in the region. Thanks very much for participating in this week's People of the Pod. Thank you so much. Pleasure and honor. Thank you. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to Jeffrey Greenberg, AJC's Assistant Director of Campus Affairs, and Natalie Kahn, a Jewish student and editor at the Harvard Crimson, discuss what Jewish and pro-Israel students can expect as they head back to campus this fall. My colleague, Maggie Wishagrod-Fredman, Senior Director of AJC's Alexander Young Leadership Department, hosted this special back-to-school episode. And don't miss The Forgotten Exodus, AJC's limited series on the untold stories of Jews from Arab lands and Iran. This week's episode features AJC's Deputy Director of Contemporary Jewish Life, Dr. Alexandra Herzog, the oldest grandchild of the modern Jewish legend, Nassim Gaon. Alexandra shares the story of her family's flight from Sudan, her grandfather's quest for equality in Israel, and his pursuit of peace between the Jewish state and Arab nations. Tune in next week for our final installment on the exodus of Jews from Iran with poet and author Roya Hakakian. Find The Forgotten Exodus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.